There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guests today are Daniel Fairley and John Thompson, both of the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, and our topics today are mental health in the Black community, the Black Lives Matter movement, and more. Gentlemen, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Daniel Fairley II serves as the Youth Opportunity Coordinator focused on Black male achievement for the city of Charlottesville, Virginia. He earned his bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Richmond in 2013. In January 2014, Daniel began interning in the operations department of the White House during the Obama administration. While there, he coordinated biweekly accessibility and inclusivity meetings with stakeholders throughout the White House. Afterward, he attended the University of Vermont to earn a master's degree in higher education and student affairs administration. In December 2017, Daniel accepted his current position to work with Black youth and create targeted programs to support their achievement. Daniel also serves as the president of the 100 Black Men of Central Virginia, is a board member for Loaves and Fishes Food Pantry, and is a steering committee member for the University of Virginia Equity Center. John Thompson is a native of Lancaster, South Carolina. He's a graduate of the University of South Carolina and Liberty University. John is passionate about working with youth and their families. He has a background in both early childhood and secondary education. John has taught and continues to be heavily involved with the communities that he has stayed in. Since moving to Charlottesville, Virginia, he has a newfound love for mentorship, counseling, self-care, and spreading the awareness and importance of mental health to the Black and Brown community. He is currently pursuing his licensure in clinical mental health counseling and works as a family service specialist for the city of Charlottesville. John's goal is to stay hopeful, willing, resourceful, and a light to everyone that he can reach. I love that, John. That's awesome. Thank you. So, Daniel, I'd like to start with you today. You've been very open about your own mental health experiences. You've discussed seeing a therapist to help you work through what you've called some deep hurts and the feeling that you weren't necessarily prepared for the world. Would you share that journey with us and what you learned from it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, I'm Daniel Fairley, uh, Youth Opportunity Coordinator. And really my mental health journey started back when I was in grad school. Uh, I've lived in Virginia my entire life. I'd been born and raised near Quantico, Virginia, a small military town, and then went to University of Richmond and kind of moved up to Vermont. It was the first kind of venture outside of uh, Virginia or even the DC metro area. And during that time, I lost a close family member of mine. Um, and it was pretty intense. I mean, it was something that I wasn't really expecting to hurt as much as it did. Um, I've, I've had, I guess, like some different experiences. My dad had a stroke uh, in my senior year of college, and I was introduced into therapy during that time. But it wasn't really until like I had some pretty, again, I said like deep hurts uh, and just experiences that I wasn't expecting while being so far away from home and so far away from my community that it was a good opportunity for me to start diving into like, what does it mean? Like, what does mental health really look like? What is, is it something that I've been afraid of or kind of pushing off? Or is it something that I really could get more into and get more invested in? Um, so I think that that's kind of like my experience is really starting out and, and really starting with therapy as almost a last resort of just kind of like, I have no more energy. I have no more space. I really need help. And, and that first initial ask of help was a big opportunity and, and a big point of growth for me uh, because I've been seeing a therapist ever since then. So it's been in 2015, I think is when I started seeing a therapist and it's been incredible. I mean, it's changed my life. It definitely has made me a better person and helped me to understand more about myself and my feelings and really recognize like the times in which I've been feeling hurt or feeling upset. And instead of just acting on those impulses, I've been able to kind of channel those feelings more positively. Uh, so I've been really, really thankful for therapy that I've been involved in. And John, why do you believe it's time to put a greater emphasis on Black mental health? Um, mainly because right now a lot is going on. A lot is going on out loud. Um, and we're really having to deal with it um, from, from things going on in our communities to things being televised in the media. Um, wounds, wounds aren't given time to heal. So um, before 
something before you were able to heal one time, something else happens. Um, and having control of our minds and being able to be at peace with, you know, w- when a lot of things are going on, around, going on, when a lot of things are going on around us um, is very important. Um, we're already dying from stress. <laughs> we're already, you know, um, suicide rates are, are rising. I read an article the other day that said the, um, the suicide Overall, the suicide rates um, have dropped for the twenty for twenty twenty, but for African Americans, it's it's up, mm-hmm. it's up. And so, um, getting a hold of our mental health and obtaining peace, you know, obtaining the peace is something that can't be taken away once we've got a hold of it. And so, um, I think that's why I think it's important for us to focus on that right now. Yeah, you, you mentioned there about overall suicide rates dropping, but in the African American community, it's not. And when we first connected a few months ago, right about that same time is when the CDC released the report that over the course of 2020, the average lifespan of Caucasians dropped by one year and for African-Americans it dropped by 2.6 or 2.7 years. Hmm. And that's just astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. So, you know, there's been a stigma in our country for decades surrounding mental health. What does that stigma look like specifically? And how does it manifest itself in the context of the black community? Neither one of you can answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's incredible, especially like you're thinking about the Black community, right? And there are a couple of different tropes or stereotypes. You have the strong Black mother and the strong Black woman and kind of this idea that nothing can hurt Black women. They're so, um, and like, you know, it, it, invincible, right? They're, they're able to do anything that they, that they want to do, um, which is great. And it can be a really empowering opportunity for young Black girls to see themselves and see Black women as strong and as, um, characters and, and, you know, like the head of their households and, and good, good parts that come from that. Um, but what it also means is that Black women don't have the opportunity to show vulnerability, right? Black women don't have the opportunity to um, hurt and, and to let their hurt out. And I think the same can be true for Black men. And then you also, you have all of that, but then you also have masculinity on top of it. And then, so you have Black masculinity, which often is linked to hypermasculinity and the idea that, Black men are uh, so masculine, they're almost animalistic. Uh, it's this idea that there's uh, so many, like Black men are, are, are threats in so many different ways, um, which then links to, again, when you're seen as an animal and you're seen as someone that is, um, you know, uh, almost inhuman in, in your ability to create chaos, like that, that puts strength and puts like, you know, weight on your own mental health and your own mental abilities. So it's something that not only connects to the experiences of black men and kind of how we are like told to navigate through the world. Like we're the, we're told from the very, very little, like, Oh, that's my little man. Like he's going to be so big and strong, like da, 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 da. And you have these experiences where as black children, you're growing up and you're told, you know, don't cry, don't show weakness. And, excuse me, a lot of that can honestly be linked to if you're thinking about the ways that Black men are brought up and in, in honestly Black mothers in slavery. Uh, Dr. Joy DeGroote talks about like the post-traumatic slave syndrome and this idea that if you ask a Black mother to, you know, talk about their child, talk about their experiences, a lot of times a Black mother may come around and say, oh, you know, like, yeah, he's fine. Like he's doing a good job or he's, he does, you know, he's okay in basketball or, you know, he has uh, some good grades here and there. Um, he'll take out the trash when I ask him to. Meanwhile, if you ask a white mother that, they may say, oh my God, you know, little Johnny is the best. Like he is, you know, he's only second in his team, but he's really going to work hard and he's this and he's that. And you kind of see the differences of Black women um, and kind of treating our Black families and, and linking it back to honestly slavery and this idea that like you don't want to boost up all of like the greatness and all of the great things that are in the young black men that you're working with or young black men that you're, you know, raising as children, because they can be taken away from you because that experience of boosting them up or that experience of building them up to be, you know, something really, really great can be seen as like uh, a threat to other people. And it can be seen as an opportunity for them to take them away, either physically trade them through slavery and, and sell them or through, I mean, things like police violence and, and all those other things. So I, I, there's so many opportunities where, our Black culture is kind of like shifted and has really been centered around this idea of like, how do you be enough, but then don't get noticed to where it's, it becomes mm-hmm. a threat to other people, right? You want to just be as least threatening as possible. Um, and to have all of those ideas in your head, that messes with your mental health, that messes with the opportunities and what you think that you can do, because you're so thinking about everything that comes into play 
um, and every step that you take and how it's going to be perceived by others. John, anything to add there? I just want to piggyback off of what Daniel said when he when he gave the gave the example of the, the strong black mom and the strong black man um, and raising the kids. I was that kid that I cried. You know, I showed weakness and I was, you know, and I was shunned. Not because, you know, mm-hmm. not because, but mainly because it was from generations passed down, it, it, it wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. I was shunned and I retreated and that almost ruined me. You know, that almost ruined me until like one day I felt like, hey, I, I need to be vulnerable. I need to speak up. I need to say like what I feel because um, while things around me are going fine, um, mentally, I feel like a Coke bottle that has been shaken up and that's literally ready to explode. Mm-hmm. And so um, that, you know, like we, we, we have to, we have to focus, you know, we have to focus on tearing those stigmas down because it is important that we talk about, you know, like our mental health, you know, and, and, and just saying, you know, like how we actually feel instead of saying, you know, like, Hey, I'm good. Um, and that's all the way across the board. You know, so I've been trying to get uh, Jim Ursia, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts on the show and working with his team. And they launched a campaign a few months ago called Kicking the Stigma. And today, through the rest of the week, they're having a big fundraising event to try and raise you know, mental health awareness and, and kick the stigma. And I was on the website this morning and they've got different donation pledge levels. And there's a different quote for each dollar amount to donate. So one of them is, it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. But, but John used, used the word vulnerable and they've got one on there that says, being vulnerable is a strength. Mm-hmm. And I think you just hit the nail on the head with that. So I'd like to drill down a little further on that question to the interaction between faith and mental health in the Black community. With some religions, there's a conviction that, you know, in quotes, it, it's in God's hands. I realize we're not talking about a monolith, but does faith play a part in either encouraging or discouraging some Black people from seeking professional mental health care? You want me to answer that, then? I'd love for you to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say yes. Um, because in the, I'm born and raised Lancaster, South Carolina, um, and our faith, you know, in the South, you know, the Bible Belt, God is everything. And still today, God is everything. Um, but after growing and learning, you know, like who God is over the years, I realized that, hey, um, God, God made teachers, God made mechanics, God made counselors. Um, and you know, there's a scripture, um, I think it may be, I think it's Proverbs, Proverbs 11, 14, and it says where there's no, um, where there's no guidance, people fall and mm-hmm. where there's abundance of counseling, you know, abundance of counseling, counselors, their safety. And I believe in while our faith, you know, while our faith is the heart of everything, while our faith is the heart of everything, we're, we were always told, you know, like to put it in God's hands, to put it in God's hands. But also, I believe that faith without works is dead. Okay, we, we, can't, we can't pray, you know, we're not going to just pray a headache away. You might pray and give me a Tylenol. You know, you're not about to pray stress away. You know, pray for me, but like, mm-hmm. let me go see my counselor. Because um, I don't feel like, you know, like sometimes, sometimes there are things that you just can't talk to the next man about. There are some things that you, can't, you really can't talk to your mom or your dad about because, you know, they're not, they're not equipped, you know, they're not equipped to, you know, to work, to, to walk you through those, you know, to walk you through um, a situation and to kind of get you to be vulnerable without, without knowing that you're being vulnerable. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Daniel. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that you're exactly right, John. It's, it's something that we've, um, I grew up in, in the Southern Baptist Church as well, and it's it's been a big part of my life and continues to be. Um, the thing that I've realized, honestly, with with therapy and with you know the Bible and Scripture, is like you can do both, right? Like you you I talked to my therapist about like my faith in God, and I talked to my therapist about my belief and my love and my trust, and like that is she like she talks about it. She's like that's incredibly healthy to have those experiences where you're able to believe in something that's bigger than yourself and you're able to push your, um, push your boundaries and push, you know, what you think you can do beyond what's what you can see. And I think that that's something that I'm, I'm really encouraged by is to 
have a counselor and still have faith, right? And and I think that those are two things that can easily exist together. Um, and I, I I know that there's a lot of stigma that comes with um, going to go see counselors and making sure, I mean, like, you know, I, I try every day to get my mom to go see a counselor because uh, we had lost my grandfather and it was a big, big part of her life. And it's something that like we're, we're working together on, but I know that it's, it's a big shift and it's a big change, especially from generations to go from not just seeing your pastor or not just seeing um, the people that you're closely connected to, but instead going to go see someone that you're, you're literally paying to listen to you and you're paying to hear your experiences and, and walk you through some of the trauma that you've experienced. And I think that that's, that's totally fine. And to still have faith. I, I think that there are two things that can definitely coexist. So you just talked about paying somebody to listen to you and to try to help you. Do you feel there are economic inequalities that exist in mental health care? And if so, what are they and how do we fix them? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's something that I've, I've been lucky enough to, one, when I started going to therapy, I was in grad school. And so therapy was free. It was just kind of, you would just sign up and go. Um, and so that thankfully, I, that's how I started because when I started having to pay for therapy as I, you know, grew, grew into my own job, uh, it was realizing like, okay, I already know the benefits of this. I already know that this is something that's going to help me. And sure, like paying $100, $125, $150, whatever it may be, uh, those are things that are just going to be a part of the cost that I have because I know that there's experiences and the way that my brain works that is, that makes life a bit more difficult than it would in in other cases. And so for me, it's really just coming down to like knowing those experiences and knowing that that it's something that I I have afforded and that I I can afford and that I have good health insurance. Thankfully, working for the city, um, but also knowing that like health insurance is all expensive, right? So I, I, I'm just getting, just now getting married um, in a couple of days and I was working through health insurance and just trying to figure out all the different ways in which I want to, uh, you know, like we have to change. We have to change, like my wife's going to be on my health insurance. And that like boosted my health insurance. This is again, a city government job um, went from $35 a paycheck to $235 a paycheck for one extra person. Uh, not to mention putting a family on my uh, health insurance or anything like that. So I'm seeing those numbers and I'm like, oh, okay. So that means that the extra money I was putting towards retirement, I now can't do that. All right. I like that's, we still need to keep the income that I have in order for us to stay inside of our home. And that's like an inequality of someone that, you know, it's, this is money that was extra to me, but it's not, it's not extra to everyone. Right. And it's money that I'm not saving for down the road in retirement. Um, so I know that these experiences are just compounded when you think about people that don't have health insurance or people that have very low rate health insurance where their premiums um, and their monthly payments may not be that much, but then they're paying a lot to go see the doctor. They're paying 50, $60 every time. And so they take those opportunities and they say, you know what, I'm not going to go see a doctor or like mental health care just isn't covered under my insurance. So I, I can't go out of network um, and pay an extra $150 to do this thing that feels optional to me, um, even when we know that it's not. John, anything to add there? Dang, you did good, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. So that being said, are there things we can do to benefit our mental health that don't cost money? Definitely. Um, the first one may be the hardest, maybe the hardest thing. Um, but I would say practice vulnerability. Um, talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Talk to somebody. Um, practice it like you know, just like you're working out. It's a muscle. And the more you know, you're op- the more you're open to being open, um, it it'll come, it comes naturally. It comes naturally. I try not to have anything fester. I try not to have anything on my mind um all the time because I'm a thinker. I'm a thinker and to be think, you know, I don't, I don't want things in my mind that I don't want to think about. I don't want things in my mind that I'm going to worry about all the time. And it will start like, you know, almost kind of like dough when you're rolling dough and it picks up or almost like a snowball effect, you know, like it it starts small. And so be vulnerable, be be vulnerable with somebody, be vulnerable with yourself. I started, I started writing. You know, and a lot of things come across the pen before they come, you know, before I don't I don't think about it. And I'll go back and read and I'm like, whoa, like I wrote that, like, you know, like that was that was bothering me. Um, and then I know Daniel likes to play basketball. You know, there there are a lot mm-hmm. of things that there are a lot of things that you can do for your mental health. 
you know, that that does that doesn't cost. Um, exercise the word no. A lot of times I a lot of times we put way too many things, way too many things on our schedule. A lot of the times we try to please too way too many people. Um, and we, you know, they may look at us and feel like, you know, like, hey, this person has the capacity to help me. And you may feel like that too. But then when when you're stressed out, when you're stressed out and you realize, okay, when you're in the thick of thick in the thick of something, and you're like, okay, I sh- I should have said no. I should have said no, because like, hey, I'm 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 about to lose it. You know, um, and because a lot of us are very resilient, we make, you know, you know, very resilient, we bounce back and we make things happen. Um, but no is a good word. No is a good word, and especially when it comes to your mental health. And no is free. <laughs> it is very free. It's a very small word. Yeah, very, exactly. very powerful. <laughs> We're hearing more and more about the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on mental health, especially the long-running quarantine. Many people feel, and rightly so, that they have been working harder since they started working at home. How does that prolonged work-home connection affect people's mental well-being? I mean, I, I can speak to for myself. I mean, it's been incredibly hard, um, not just because of the being a, the ability or like honestly the privilege that comes with working from home, but also knowing that there is actually like the expectations that we have for ourselves are so much greater than I think that we have um, for like the maybe society or maybe our you know bosses or whomever have for us. Um, we have this expectation that we're always supposed to be working or that if we're, we don't, we forget that we spend a lot of our time, you know, in community with people. We spend a lot of our time either driving to work or like talking to our coworkers or grabbing lunch or whatever it is. And, and like, those are things that are good for us. Those are things that, that fill and make us more productive workers. Um, but I think that when we continue to work from home and we, we kind of continue to uh, almost like isolate ourselves in, in this way, it, it makes it so much harder to turn off when you're coming from home, right? Turn off when you're done with work. Um, I started uh, going to go get coffee in the morning uh, just because like it was an opportunity for me to like, okay, like work is starting. Like, you know, you had like your podcast in the morning, you got to listen to the news and then like, let's get ready to go to work. Um, And then now I need like an afternoon routine uh, to make sure that I'm also doing the same thing and coming off of work because otherwise I'll just keep working until the night goes. Um, And then you're checking email every now and again. And then maybe you're watching TV, but you're also probably scrolling a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then next thing you know, it's time for you to go to sleep and you're up, you've been working for almost 12 hours. Uh, So those are the things that I've been trying to do is make sure that there's opportunities for me to really get focused and and have delineation between when I start work and when I end work. So then how do we disconnect from work as we continue to work from home? <laughs> it's really hard. John, I know you have a little something that you like to do. <laughs> it, it's, it's still hard. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that I still struggle disconnecting from work um, at times because sometimes I feel like my position is community-based. Right. And so um, with the world still kind of being shut down, I can't go and, you know, I can't go and come as I please, you know, into the school and stuff like that. Um, but for me to disconnect, I you know that word no again. I don't check my, you know, like five o'clock. I don't check my email and um, I get up and I leave work, a.k.a. my couch or my kitchen table. You know, like I have mm-hmm. to like Daniel gets up and goes to get coffee in the morning. I have to leave, you know, and that's like my transition tool to say, like, hey, you're off work. And even if it's just walking out, out the door and coming back in, like I, I it has to be something that's symbolic. Say, okay, like, hey, you're off and it's your time now. Go to the gym, go eat dinner or something like that. Go look at go look at the, the birds in the sky or something, you know, but like not work. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm with you. And, and, you know, I built sort of what I call my basement bunker through all this and, and sort of put a home office downstairs. And so it's really hard to unplug. You know, and I'm a guy who commuted three and a half hours a day you know, into wow. and, and back from New York City. So, mm-hmm. you know, as the world reopens, how do we reacclimate in our work environment once things do open again? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's something, 
we, I think we have to realize that we're all doing this together, right? This is the first time that any of us have gone through a pandemic. This is the first time that any of us have been isolated away from people. Um, and so having grace for each other and knowing that like, it's gonna be awkward. We're gonna feel weird. We're gonna wanna just leave a meeting and just say, oh, my internet connection was broken, but we're in person now and we can't do that. We can't just say I'm, I'm done with, with this meeting or this conversation. Uh, so I think that, that we're all gonna be doing this together. And I think that having grace for other people and like John said before about being vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable with each other and being vulnerable uh, with those opportunities to share and, and just kind of say, hey, this feels kind of weird. Or like this is new again, or like we're in a different space. Um, how are you all feeling about this? But those are the opportunities that I think we have. And it's hopefully going to make it a better uh, path forward for all of us. We've been talking to Daniel Fairley and John Thompson. And we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, and we are back with Daniel Fairley. Youth Opportunity Coordinator focused on Black Male Achievement for the City of Charlottesville, Virginia, and John Thompson, a Family Service Specialist for the City of Charlottesville, who's pursuing, pursuing his licensure in clinical mental health counseling. We've been talking about mental health in the Black community. There's a special traditional relationship within the Black community that, you, that you've brought up to me, and that's the barber-customer relationship. You've both said that as kids, you would go to the barber shop, even if you didn't need a haircut, just to be in a community atmosphere and be around the barbers who are essentially community mentors and counselors. How do we replicate that sense of belonging in other settings? Or is that even possible? It's possible. It's, it's possible. <laughs> two, two words. Um, but the barbershop is very informal. It's, it's very informal. It's almost like the kitchen table, um, the kitchen table 
or um, the back porch mm-hmm. and um, being able to go to being able to go to the barbershop and sit in in the barber's chair or sit in the waiting chairs and hear other men be open about what's going on at home, you know, and not not just sports, you know, what's going on at home, what's going on at church, what's going on with the world. Um, it kind of it kind of ignited something in me to be like, OK, like, hey, this, you know, th- this is this is fine. I hated going to the Bob shop at first, you know, to be honest, my mom used to cut my hair all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and then like one day she was like, okay, you're going to the barbershop. And she dropped me off at seven o'clock and I had to wait, <laughs> I had to wait. I don't think I left the barbershop to maybe noon that day. Cause so it was so many people in front of me, but I saw, you know, but I saw so many people, I heard so many stories and I saw like how people's demeanor, you know, like not, the, not just their, you know, like the visual, you know, like what they look like when they got out the chair, but like you could see like how, you know, you could see that they weren't as heavy before they sat, you know, as they were when they sat down. It's like, you know, like, because, hey, I talked to my barber, my, AK, you know, my, my therapist. And um, I feel like we can replicate that in all, you know, in, in all of the settings, you know, in the household, you know, in the household, um, at the school, you know, in schools. Um, I used to be a, I used to be a school-based, um, school-based therapeutic day treatment um, counselor. And um, I started a boys, I started a boys group and I called and I called it the barbershop. Okay, we come in here during lunch and it's almost like, when they, you know, when they say what happened in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that's what happened in Mr. John's office. We came in and we talked, we talked, we talked about everything. And I want to see those boys leave my office completely, you know, completely different. And if, you know, sometimes it wouldn't, it wouldn't be completely different. I could tell that when they were leaving that, Hey, what was on my mind when I came in here, you know, we hashed it out. We talked, we talked about it. I can make it through the next part of the day. And, um, and I think that's the, you know, you don't go to the barbershop to make it to the next part of the day, but like, you know, you go in and when you sit down in that chair, um, I feel like it's symbolic to sit, you know, to talking to a therapist. It's symbolic to talking to a therapist, you know, like when you leave, you've kind of, don't you know you've taken the trash out so absolutely i mean like for me it's really it's this opportunity where you're not just connecting with the people that are in your neighborhood the people that you know you may see um at the corner store or other things like that but it's also it's one of the only openly male spaces uh that's like pretty explicit like it's it's rare that you would find women inside of those spaces unless they're mothers of kids or things like that where I think it allows for men to be vulnerable in ways that they wouldn't normally be. Um, I mean, especially if you're working with teenagers, gosh, if if you're like in a group of teenage boys, um, no matter what their sexuality actually is, like their their demeanor completely changes. So you throw just one teenage girl inside the room. Mm -hmm. um, It's completely different, right? They they just don't know how to act. They, they, They lose all control of themselves. And like, and I think that when you have those spaces and you're able to kind of like, be a little more vulnerable with each other, be a little more um, open and, and not worry about impressing someone like in kind of like a, a way, like a sexual way or like a, a conquest type of way that's like so built into this like unhealthy masculinity that comes with interacting with, with people. Um, the idea that you can go to a barbershop and you can really truly like be yourself is so freeing. And it's, it's also as oftentimes like a group of black men and you're able to say like, Hey y'all, I remember actually I was in um, the barbershop when I learned about, you know, people were saying, okay, like, yeah, I do speed when I go down the highway, but I make sure to never go over 80 because I was talking to my friend who's a police officer. And he was saying that over 80 is, you know, the way that's uh, reckless driving in Virginia um, or 20 over in any speed limit. And I was like, Oh, cool. That's good to know. I'm like 14 years old. Like now I have this knowledge for when I go, when I start driving, but like that was something I learned at the barbershop, right? It wasn't some, like, there was no test on that. There was no way that I could, um, you know, I guess I could look it up online, but I was, uh, I was just trying to like figure out what's going on and, and what people do. And that's, there were like safety mechanisms of like things that people would do and say, um, around police officers or in their neighborhoods that were linked to the barbershop and linked to the ways in which they try to like, you know, kind of, influence each other and, and make sure that we're all taken care of. 
There's another aspect of the pandemic that's caused increased anxiety, and that's the vaccine. Daniel, there's a unique, troubling history with the Black community in vaccines. For those who aren't familiar, would you share that history with our audience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. So, back in 1932, there was a Tuskegee study of the untreated syphilis and the male Negro. Um, and during that study, basically involved around like 600 Black men and around 400 of them had syphilis and then 200 didn't have the disease. Um, and it was it was pretty inhumane. I mean, it was definitely inhumane the way that they did it because they only studied Black people. But this idea of where they had the option and they gave Black men syphilis. They like gave them, they injected syphilis into their, bod into their bodies without them even knowing. They thought they were study standing up for some bad blood treatment used to treat like, you know, ailments and things like that, uh, fatigue and whatever. And they were just trying, I'm sure they probably maybe got like a little bit of money or some type of compensation for it, but they were supposed to, they thought they signed up, the study participants signed up thinking that they were going to be helped or thinking that they were going to be a part of some experiment that was going to be helpful. But what ended up happening was they were injected with syphilis and they, honestly, the, the, researchers were just trying to see what happens. They, they didn't know what happened to the, the body when someone has syphilis. And so they said, well, we're just going to inject people with syphilis and then just see what happens. And then even after penicillin was uh, created, and even after there was like an opportunity for the people to get penicillin, like after they had uh, syphilis in, in 1947, the researchers still didn't offer it to the subjects. And so like, it just, it became this kind of like understanding that people can inject things into your body and you don't know what it is. And especially black bodies that can be treated inhumanely, that can be treated in a way of like animal testing. Um, and this is idea that you are uh, anything that has to do like with the government, you should be wary of, or like they've done us wrong before, um, you know, be wary of what happens. And like knowing that this is obviously true, this is a very true thing that happened. And there were hundreds and hundreds of black people um, that were, that died and that were killed, like thanks to these researchers and this, this injection that happened. Um, but I know that like, for me, it is understanding that history, honoring that history, and being able to say, okay, what's different now? What do we see now that feels different? What do we see now that gives us uh, more hope and more understanding? With this experiment, they were only researching black people. They didn't tell them what was in the drugs. It wasn't approved by the FDA. Like there were all these different experiments that were happening and they had no idea. With the vaccine that we have now, there are and almost an abundance of caution. And like, there were six people, I think that had, um, are very like a single digit number of people out of thousands and thousands of people that were infected or had blood clots and the FDA stopped. And they said, you know what, let's look at this. Let's look at this drug again. Let's look at Johnson Johnson, see what happens. Let's study it some more before we release it. And doing that in an effort to be like, we are really, really cautious and really, really trying to make sure that we know what's going on. Um, before we send out these drugs and before we try to do something, you know, a vaccination that's done on such a global scale, hopefully, um, but especially in America as it's, as it's proceeding through right now. But those are like the things that are, are just such a big part of like the black experience. Because then you start getting told like, oh, I don't trust the government. Oh, I don't trust this. Or, oh, you just, you just don't know what's inside of there. Um, and it's just kind of like, I understand that there's skepticism. I understand that there's black people and, and are, you know, black people in the past that have been done wrong. And even today that's been done wrong. But like, if we're, one person said to me, um, and I kind of thought, I was like, I don't really know what, I, I don't know how to think about that because they were like, they don't like, you don't sit down and they're like, oh, black guy's here. Oh, let me go ahead and get the other, you know, vaccine and then go ahead and put it into their arm. Like you're getting the same vaccine everyone else is, right? You're, you're in the same line, you're doing the same thing. Um, and I think that there's kind of just like a, uh, a general mistrust of, of the government, a general mistrust of like the ways in which we have been mistreated and taking that to do something that again, feels very personal, right? Getting the vaccine, like as I got it, I was nervous. Certainly I got my vaccine when I was in January and I was like, I don't even know if this is going to be the vaccine that people get later on. But it was something that like, I, I honestly, I took John with me uh, just to like one, make sure that we both went through with it. Um, but also to be like, we need support, right? Like we're going to be here and we are like black people, like doing this thing, especially young black men. And like, we need to make sure that like we do this and we talk about it and we say why we did it 
because we know that this is the best information that we have right now. We know that there may be boosters in the future or whatever. We may need to take it once a year. We have no idea. But like what we know is that this is what we need to get through this hurdle. And this hurdle is COVID-19. And so I'm going to do everything I can to protect me, to protect my family, protect the kids that I work with, everything that I can, I'm going to do that. And then I think that John felt the same way because we are, we know that like, this is the way to get back to normal, right? We've done everything we were supposed to do beforehand. We've isolated, we've worked from home, we've done all that stuff, but this is where the next step is. And that's what we need to do. John, you're working on becoming a licensed clinical mental health counselor. What appeals to you about that career path? Well, the main thing is I feel like I've been doing this all of my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been doing it. I've been doing it all of my life. And you know how um, in the church, they always say, you know, like you're running from your calling. (laughs) And um, when I moved to Virginia and I was kind of in this role without pay. And I was like, man, I'm doing everything that these, you know, that these therapists are doing. I can do everything except for diagnose. And, um, I feel like I I know that I, I know that I'm I'm a helper. I'm I'm a, I'm a great listener. I'm a great listener. Um, and I may not always give immediate feedback, immediate feedback, but I'm gonna give it. You know, I may have to think on it. Um, and so after you know after some time and getting over my pride, and I was like, you know, I already have a master's degree. I don't want to go back and get another master's degree. And then looking at the curriculum, I was like, yo, it's the same curriculum as my first master's degree you know, plus 12 hours, which is, you know, those licensure courses. And, you know, and it took me, it took me a long time, almost four years. I, you know, before I started this program, I started my doctorate. And while I was working on it, I was like taunted, like every day. It was like, you know, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do, you know, without that licensure. Um, And so being able, you know, from Working in the classroom to working, you know, just with nonprofits like with the Boys and Girls Club, YMC. I used to work with an organization in favor on North Carolina called Favor Urban Ministry. And I used to work with the, um, with the youth component called Find a Friend. And like, I think that's where my eyes really, really, really opened up to where I could um, I can do this. I can do this counseling thing and not have to be not have to be formal. You know, um, I believe in meeting, you know, in meeting a child, um, not just a child, but, you know, but um, an adult, like where they are, where they are. And and that and that's important. That's important. And being able to see that, hey, if I can't I can't I know I can't say them all, but if I can get one person to one person to listen to me, then, you know, like, I'm you know, I'm good. I'm good. And so um, after you know, after several dreams, after several dreams and, you know, like talking to several people and um, realizing, you know, that things that I do day in and day out is, you know, is this, I was like, you know, I might as well go ahead and I might, I might as well go ahead and do this, you know, like, let me go ahead and do it. And even if I don't go into full-time counseling, this, this is going to be my, this is going to be my retirement plan. <laughs> so once you finish that, do you go back to do your doctorate work? Yes. Awesome. Yes. I love it. So gentlemen, I'd like to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and give our audience a better understanding of it. What does Black Lives Matter mean to each of you on a personal level? And to what extent are each of you involved in it? So for me, um, I've been, I mean, involved in Black Lives Matter since, uh, whether it's formally or informally, um, since 2012 when Trayvon Martin um, was killed. And that was, uh, there's pictures of like, you know, my fraternity through, uh, our, it's actually really interesting. Now that I'm thinking about it, we only, we weren't able to throw a protest at University of Richmond. They only allowed us to throw like a vigil um, honoring Trayvon Martin and just kind of acknowledging that he died, uh, which is like interesting to think about it now, because I, if I knew what I know now, I would have fought for the idea of a protest and for us to walk around um, and, and things like that. But, you know, that's kind of something that I think is interesting in the way that you're, uh, they didn't want to touch like a hot button issue like that in 2012. And so they were like, oh, we'll let you not necessarily protest, but we'll, we'll give you an opportunity. He did die. So, you know, we'll let you kind of walk around and, and carry candles. Um, and so I think that like, that was my first initial kind of like entry into Black Lives Matter and entry into this idea 
um, that this person who, again, this, this like Trayvon Martin was a child um, and I was, I mean, I was still a child. I was, I was 20 years old, maybe 19 at that time. And I, I didn't have like those experiences. I, I knew what it was like to like be pulled over unnecessarily or to have people look at me differently, um, especially police officers. But like, I also, as I mentioned before, grew up in a space where my dad is a, a former police officer. He retired from the Pentagon Force Protection Agency. Um, my neighbor was a head of the FBI SWAT team. My other neighbor was a three-star general. Like I grew up in military, federal government, police, like town. Like that was just everyone that I knew was involved in that. Um, and so it became interesting, especially because I I began this as being like, well, duh, like Black Lives Matter, like my life matters. This is something that I believe and this is something that I know and I love. Um, but when it started kind of becoming uh, this, almost this belief that, that we're completely against, um, you know, police officers in general or that they're tearing down buildings and burning things for no reason, um, all these other, like, the, the way that it was morphed from please stop shooting us to, like, oh, these people are terrorists um, mm-hmm. is just, like, incredible um, because that's not at all how I feel or not at all anyone that I know um, that's involved in the movement feels like. This is something that, like, if people were dying in your community, you would want to stop it. You'd want to say hey, please stop killing us. And that's like ridiculous to think that there is even, I have to ask that as, as a person, like I am a human being. And I think a lot of the, the things that I see are really just the dehumanization of black people, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's something that's been going on in America and even with native Americans. It's when you don't see someone as human, then you feel like you can do anything to them. You feel like you can um, treat them any way. You can do things like the Tuskegee experiment. You can put them into slavery um, and chains. You can throw them into jail. You can do literally anything to someone that you don't see as human. And that is something that I, I believe that I fight for every time that I talk about Black Lives Matter is what I'm saying is like, see us as humans, see us mm-hmm. as the same as you. Uh, it's not that different. It's not that hard. Like our, our skin is different, but this doesn't mean that we are somehow less than you or somehow um, not worthy of the love and compassion that we're all looking for. So that's kind of like my experience. Um, and it, it just, it means a lot to me when I see people that, understand and embrace Black Lives Matter um, and understand that it's something like, so again, when defunding the police came about and that being a part of like the Black Lives Matter movement or kind of a separate movement, those opportunities, I, again, I really had to think about it as someone who grew up and like, like my entire livelihood was brought to you by the police, right? It was brought to you by the experiences of federal government and Marines. Um, And so to know that like, that was my experience. And then also understanding that oh, wow, you know what? My dad, we had a thin blue line sticker on every one of our cars to remind people, to, to for the police officers to know that they may see a black person, but in the back of our car, when they pull us over, they're gonna see a thin blue line. And the first thing my dad pulls out every single time, the first thing he pulls out is his badge. And he says, hi, I'm a police officer. Here's my name, here's my insurance, here's this, here's that. It is like his first line of defense to be like, I am like you, see me as human, right? And when he retired from the when he retired from the Pentagon Force Protection Agency, he gave me his badge to put in my car to be able to say, "My dad is a police officer. I am your son." You know what I mean? Like, see me as human. And that's like those are the things that I that I relate to and that I understand the Black Lives Matter movement to be. And even with defunding the police, it's getting more people like John to to do the work that we shouldn't be asking police officers to do in the first place. Right? My dad had so many things that he was required to do. There was one person that just like was in a jewelry store inside of the the Pentagon. And he just like stole the chain. Like he was looking at a chain and just ran out the store. And my dad was there, but the only thing that he had on him was a gun. And he was like, I'm not gonna shoot this person for Mm -hmm. stealing a chain. But that was my only weapon that I had. I had no handcuffs or anything. So like from that day on, he started carrying handcuffs with him when he went to work. But like, those are, those are, I don't know. I have a lot of different thoughts, but like, that's what I'm thinking about when I think of Black Lives Matter is like, treat us as humans. John, and for me to um to say the least, um, Black Lives Matter it means exactly what it says. You know, like Daniel says, not that's not complicated. You know, but like I, you know, like some people say, for the folks in the back, you know, the straight black, the gay black, the asexual, mm-hmm. the homo, mm-hmm. you know, the um, 
the, the transsexual, the bisexual, the Christian, the Muslim, you know, whatever religion, that black person, every black person, um, you know, it black, no, black lives, black lives matter. You know, mm-hmm. it clearly means, you know, it, it makes me emotional that I, you know, that I have to gather, you know, that I have, that I feel like I have to gather allies, you know, um, people that don't look like, you know, or, or people just that don't look like me, you know, to remind them that, hey, like, hey, I'm, you know, I matter. You know, like I said, it, it makes me sad. It makes me angry that I encounter, like, that I encounter white people um, that think, you know, we're trying to exclude them. And mm-hmm. that's not the case. You know, I look at like a lot, a lot of the things that my ancestors have done for this con- for this country um, and the maintenance that has been done to it and the maintenance that has continued, you know, to be done to it. Um, and I get angry that, you know, that this is a whole movement to say that, hey, treat me like I'm human. I matter. Um, so that, that's, that, that's, that's how I feel. Well, we've only gone through about half of our questions, unfortunately, and we have just, <laughs> just a few minutes left. So that means we have another show with you guys coming back. And so I really appreciate your time here. But how does someone get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you, what you do, you know, follow your podcast? Where can they find you both? Yeah. So basically, um, I, again, I'm in charge of uh, the Charlottesville Alliance for Black Male Achievement here in the city. And with that, if you just go to youtube.com and you type in B as in Black, M as in Male, A as in Achievement, Seville, uh, short for Charlottesville, uh, you'll find our, our podcast. It's one of the first things that comes up. It has a, a blue lion um, harkening back to one of our older programs. Um, but yeah, but like BMA Seville, that is like an awesome opportunity to see our podcast and to see the ways in which we've talked about Black mental health with people such as Dr. Cameron Webb, who's now the senior advisor for COVID equity in the White House, um, people such as Mac McClellan and other local people in Charlottesville. Honestly, I mean, it's, it's an opportunity for us to really share our thoughts and share our experiences with others and show that we're Black men having a conversation about mental health because we know that it matters and we know that this is how we continue to live longer lives. Daniel Fairley and John Thompson, thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. We look forward to coming back. (laughs) Exactly. Likewise. And Mm -hmm. thanks to our listeners for joining us. Until next Tuesday, same time, same place. Stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.